Well, in this series of sermons entitled Epiphany, where we're looking through the some passages in Matthew's gospel, we're looking at God's self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Epiphany is all about. It's about coming to terms with the way in which God has revealed himself in and through his son. And in these passages in Matthew's gospel, we're kind of bracketing this series with the two Sundays that come at the beginning and the end of this season. The baptism of Jesus is on the first Sunday of this season, and the story of the transfiguration of the Lord is on the last Sunday of of this season. And on, on the 19th of February is when this series ends, and we'll have a guest preacher that day. Patrick Vaughn is going to be with you to bring that sermon on Transfiguration Sunday. But those two Sundays of the baptism of the Lord and the transfiguration of the Lord are kind of the bookends, the two big truths of how God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In complete humility and identification with us, the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself. And yet also the exaltation of the one who is the second person of the Trinity, who reveals himself to be the one who was before all things as Moses and Elijah appear with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and those four disciples or three disciples have the vision of Jesus as the exalted uh, Son of God. Those are the two bookends of this revelation and in between we're dealing also with his teaching. And so Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5 through 7, and we started last week with the, the first four Beatitudes. We'll look at the last four Beatitudes today. We looked at the way in which it seemed to me those first four were about coming to grips with our hunger and going in search of the food that would satisfy us. Today we're looking at the way in which humility is the quality that that is most represented in this way of Jesus. And we're looking at Matthew 5, 7 through 11 this morning. So let me read that text for you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Take us into that place of rest, O God, where we can let go of the various causes and worries of achievements and tasks yet to be done, and to understand ourselves irrespective of that list to be your children, firmly in the grips of the embrace of your steadfast love. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I imagine that most of you have seen the bumper sticker that goes something like this. There are different versions of it, and they're usually on a car that takes quite a bit to afford. (laughs) 
but it's something like goes something like this he who dies with the most toys wins have you seen that bumper sticker the one who dies with the most toys wins it sort of begs a question i think and that's wins what <laughs> and what do you do with it if you're dead the real truth is is he who dies is dead and irrespective of how many toys he has or she has they're still dead and it's the parable jesus parable of the rich fool in luke 12 that i think frames the question the best and that's the the story of the man who's prosperous and his crops are producing and and he just says, oh, I just need to build more barns. I'm going to build bigger barns, bigger and bigger barns, and grow more and more of, of my crop and store this grain. And then the turn in the parable is the message from some messenger from heaven who says, fool, tonight your soul is demanded of you. And, and all that you have accumulated, all that you have stored up, whose will it be? That's the question. It's that sense of how we are, in the words of Psalm 49, just mere animals, beasts. And Psalm 49 says, for, for humanity, mortals are, are like the beasts. They cannot abide in their pomp. They cannot remain there. They can't live in all their pomposity. But like the beasts, they die. And this wisdom is not usually something we weigh heavy when we're in the process of abiding by a different set of rules, the world's rules, really, where we'd rather ride away on those horses of Isaiah 30 and try to accumulate more rather than learn the wonder of rest and returning to God. It's really a matter of, of listening to that word from Jesus that we just read. And what he calls us to do in the Beatitudes is to live a, a considered life, a life fueled by a quest for that knowledge of ourselves, a, a true apprehension of, of who we are and who made us, and therefore also a knowledge of the one who made us, a knowledge of God. And it's a deeply countercultural list that we have in the Beatitudes of what characterizes the life, which is one that is on this way of knowledge of, of self and, and knowledge of God, who's on this way of Jesus, this way of the kingdom of, of God. It's a life that is clearly not about the accumulation of things that we need to impress God, that somehow those things that we accumulate speak to our blessedness and also work to, to just sort of reinforce God's approval of us. The Beatitudes clearly don't describe that way. They describe a way that is about resting in our God-given identity as children of God. And they describe a way of reflecting that identity in the way we relate to the world. In the kingdom, as Jesus tells us in 
that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. In the kingdom of God, it is the humble who are exalted. And this second set of the Beatitudes, as the first four, point to what it looks like to live this life. And, and I think I put the title on these four Beatitudes, humility, and it's not as if the first list is all about hunger and the second part of the list is all about humility. They are intermixed in both places. But I put that title on today's because at least three of them really pretty much have to do with humility. <laughs> but he speaks, first of all, of, of being merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And that word mercy is, is one of those words that I think we often associate most prominently with our older brother holding our arm behind our back when we're little kids and pushing it up and saying, mercy, say mercy. There's some truth to that, that there's someone more powerful than us whose mercy we need in order to survive. And certainly the word is appropriate to use in that context. But we've got to remember that that word mercy is often associated with, more often than not, with, with words that have to do with nurture and loving kindness. It's not just a withholding of wrath. Just like peace is not just the absence of conflict, mercy is not just, okay, go ahead, I won't kill you. Mercy is, I care so deeply for you that I will never depart from you. It's not just a withholding of wrath, but it's an extending of oneself in kindness toward another. Last week, I read Eugene Peterson's interpretations of the Beatitudes in the message, and, and I'm going to do the same thing today because I, I just like what he says. He gets us thinking about them differently. And he translates blessed are the merciful as in this way. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. And then comes pure in heart. And I think the best way to talk about purity in heart is to talk about integrity, is to talk about integration, to talk about a, a body and soul that are in sync with one another, a, a mind and body in sync with one another, a heart and a body in sync with one another, a heart and a mind in sync, that we're functioning in a way where we're connected, integrated. The psalmists often pray for something that they call an undivided heart. And I love that expression because it, to me, is, is the heart of integrity. It's that I, I know who I am, I know what I believe, and I am reflecting that in my actions. That undivided heart, not the, the mind that tells me to do one thing and the heart that I know is different than that, but that there's an integration that, that is going on. I don't just want to do the right thing. I want to want the right thing as well. Peterson says it this way, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God who's in the outside world. And then third, the peacemakers. Blessed are, are the peacemakers for they'll be called the children of God. 
you go to the Hebrew word shalom and you go to a very different understanding of peace than what we normally put with peace, like mercy. Peace is often for us just the absence of conflict. I'm reading a book right now about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his brother-in-law, Hans von Dachnanyi in Nazi Germany. And when Neville Chamberlain came back from his visit with Adolf Hitler and was waving the sheet of paper, peace in our time, peace in our time, and then literally weeks later, uh, finding themselves embroiled in war after the, the invasion of Poland. The peace that Chamberlain was talking about was the peace of avoiding war, of avoiding conflict. But real peace, we knew, would require something very different than just that agreement. When you look at the Hebrew sense of what peace is, shalom, it is the desire that God's best would have control and sway over, over all that we are and, and all that we do. It's a promise of, of what we were made for. It's the experience of knowing that all is right and that it won't ever go away. Psalmists talk about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the city of peace in some ways, but this, just this sense of, of well-being, of knowing that we're experiencing God's best and enjoying that blessing, that's what shalom is. To be at peace is to be aware of also God's best and seeking to establish that in our relationships and our work and and everywhere that we are, giving witness to that, reflecting that, and so inviting others to it, and therefore enjoying a blessing. Peterson's take on the peacemaker beatitude is, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are, and your place in God's family. That's when you discover you're a part of God's work. And then finally, the most difficult one, not one that we try to get into, obviously, but blessed are the persecuted, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's, I think, the most difficult of the Beatitudes, and that's why Jesus says it in two different ways and gives us the explanation in the, in the second part of that. It's more of a promise than it is a blessing. It's kind of like the promise that Jesus makes when he says, in the world you will have trouble. It just is unavoidable. So if you're experiencing trouble, don't think you're on the wrong road you're probably still on the right road, and the trouble might be itself an indicator that you are. In the world, you will have trouble. Jesus goes on to say, but I have overcome the world. We like that second phrase a lot. As I've said before, that's the one that gets put up on the samplers in people's homes. I have overcome the world. But in the world, you will have trouble doesn't really test well in most markets um, <laughs> as a great saying, but it is a deep truth. 
and one that ought not to surprise us when we experience it as true. For what he's saying is, is if you walk this way, it will put you at odds with the world and it will give you different values and different measures of wealth. And that in and of itself will bring you trouble because it puts you out of sync with a lot of your context and where you're living and who you're relating to. But Jesus says in this beatitude that to walk in his way is to become unafraid of the fears that fuel the world. Unafraid of the fears that seem to propel most of what we're being told most of the time. Advertising is essentially based on getting you aware of what you aren't and what you don't have and what you need to pursue in order to be happy. And to stand against that is to choose to not have what the world tells us we need and to choose instead to rest in something that this world cannot give us. So to become unafraid of the fears that fuel the world, the fears that keep things going, to become unafraid of those things and to have no fear about not having those things makes the world afraid of us. <laughs> and that's the source of persecution not playing by the same rules. And Peterson says this, he says, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds, and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. <laughs> Kristen read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector earlier in this service. It's one of my favorite parables. It's a picture of humility, really. And it's interesting because as, as we read Luke's sort of editorial comment, he says, this is a parable about prayer. And I never really saw that until today because really what I think is there is that this is two very different prayers and two very different ways of praying. That's obvious. But in that way, it's a parable about prayer and, and not just a parable about arrogance and, and humility, but it certainly pictures what humility produces in the way of prayer. Because if you read the Pharisee's prayer, God, thank you that I have everything I need, that I'm not like other people, that you've obviously blessed me. Thank you that I'm not like him, that guy over there who's obviously a loser. The Pharisee's prayer is really, reward me, O oh God, pay up. I've done it all right. And I'm blessed because I do exactly what I should do. But the tax collector's prayer is 
Hold me. Be kind to me. Forgive me, O God. In short, the tax collector's prayer is, I need you. They're two very different states of being. The first is a kind of religious attitude that is not hard to find among any religion, the most religious of any religion. It's why, and and we'll look at this next week, it's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about that one next week. But the Pharisee and the tax collector are in two very different places. The Pharisee is in this place of comparison. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. A place of absolutely no need for empathy in his life. No kindness, no needs. So only an awareness of what others don't have, and he's glad he's not them. And a kind of outward cleanliness, but ultimately an inward turmoil. Is this enough? (laughs) Have I done it well enough? Have I impressed you enough, God? The tax collector, on the other hand, is an example of purity of heart. He knows exactly who he is and a hunger for righteousness. He knows who God is and asks God to be God in his life. Be kind, be merciful. It's a true encounter with God. What you see, O God, is what I see, and I need you. I think another way to speak of the word humility is the word gentleness. It's a word that Paul uses at the end of his life in his letter to the Philippians as he is in prison. Philippians 4, 4 to 7. He lived a life before Christ that was not unlike the Pharisees' prayer. Notice me, God. I am good. I am very good. I'm not like others. And I'm dedicating my life to make sure that these awful Christians are not spreading a different word than that. But Paul, at the end of his life, is praying the have mercy on me prayer. He's moved from riding away on his own horses, his crusade for purity. He's moved away from that, and he's moved to returning and resting in the arms of God. And so what he's talking about is joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be seen by all. The Lord is near. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Deliver us, O God, into that place of peace, that place of well-being, that place that is known in your heart, the place for which you made us. And help us in confidence to reflect that identity to our world and invite them to the same reality. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.